our beliefs inform our actions and then humans go out and do things in the world that affect other people because of the beliefs or the software that they're running in their brains. And I think it's valuable to take an occasional look at the code. Who programmed this? How did this get here? When's the last time I updated it? Does it need a revision? Is there perhaps a patch? Is something broken? I just haven't discovered it yet. And that's what we do in these conversations. We try to reflect back what we're hearing so the individual can take another look at their code. Welcome to The Shape of Dialogue. Today we have a very special guest from Texas, United States of America, uh, Mr. Anthony Magnabosco. Now, yeah. thank you very much, Anthony, for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, um, just a little bit off tangent, your name, Magnabosco, fantastic name. It's a cool name, isn't it? I like yeah, it. What's the derivation of that? It's Italian. But when, when you're a kid and you have a name like that, it's not usually very fun because uh, you get called all sorts of names, you yeah. know, but that's pretty neat. It, it, I think it stands for something like large forest, or I've even heard people say eat the forest, which is a little odd, but it's Italian. It's, um, you know, from my, my father's, my father's side. I don't right. speak any Italian, by the way. Okay. That's all right. I speak right. I speak a little Spanish and maybe a little bit of Turkish and of course right. English. Well, it's, it, I'm going to shock you. We're going to do this interview in English, so um, <sighs> should be all right. Be all right. <laughs> now, now you're you're renowned for something called street epistemology. Do you want to tell us about street epistemology? First of all, what does what does uh, epistemology mean? Mm. And 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 what do you do? Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And street epistemology is a variation of asking questions where you're getting to understand how somebody can say that they know something. So that's kind of where the epistemology thing comes in. But it's more about engaging in a dialogue with somebody where you're asking questions to have them reveal how they concluded that they can say that they know something to be true. There's some subtle differences there, but it's basically like a fancy word that can. I suppose, run the risk of intimidating people because it seems academic, but that's what epistemology is. And then we're doing a variation of it or sort of a derivation of it, I guess, where we're literally engaging with people in conversation and asking questions to figure out how they can be so sure that they can say that something is factually true. So it's uh, it's it's a kind of an unfortunate term. I think in retrospect, it wouldn't have been the word that I would have picked to build a to build a dialectical tool or this like a movement like which which it seems like we're we're at right now. So it's always like a it's one of those initial hurdles that you kind of have to clear up and get out of the way. Like it makes sense that you asked me that question because it's it kind of throws people for a loop, and then you throw in the word street with the, you know, kind of what we're doing with the street epistemology, people then think, oh, this is something that you actively go out on the street and then engage with people, which you can do and which I do because I film those conversations and put them on YouTube to show people how to do it. But most people who use this approach don't go out on the street. It's, it's conversations around the, the dining table, that sort of thing. Well, the dining table kind of implies that there might be more than one person sitting there observing, and that could actually, I think, slow down your progress. So I think the the most effective approach 
gathering, I don't know, setup would be like a one-on-one conversation where it's over video like us, like what we're doing now, or maybe over the phone or ideally in person where it, there are no, you're limiting the number of outside influences because if you're, if I'm sitting at a table and I'm engaging with a family member or a friend or even a stranger, if there are other people around, they may be a little less, they may be more guarded and a little less open. And you really do want to have a very open and honest conversation partner. If you have that with this approach, you'll make incredible strides. Why do you do it? Good question. There's a number of reasons. I guess primarily I'm of the mindset that our beliefs inform our actions and then humans go out and do things in the world that affect other people because of the beliefs or the software that they're running in their brains. And I think it's valuable to take another, take a, an occasional look at the code. You know, right. it, is who programmed this? How did this get here? When's the last time I updated it? Does, does it need a revision? Is there perhaps a patch? Is something broken? I just haven't discovered it yet. And that's what we do in these conversations. We try to reflect back what we're hearing so the individual can take another look at their code, essentially. How did I form this view? How did you get into it? I read a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists in 2013, which explained the idea. And it, it caught my attention because I was an atheist having bad conversations with theists, like arguing with them, ridiculing them, noticing that they were becoming even more entrenched in their views after arguing and debating. So this book really appealed to me. So I read it and I started going out to see if the book could live up to the expectations that it purported to make. So I wanted to have better conversations with theists and have them take another look at their views. And then I started realizing that this is technique, this approach can be used for all so sorts of claims, not just the God claims. God believers could be using this tool when they meet another God believer or an atheist or someone who makes a claim about anything else besides religion. So it was, it was inspiring and encouraging to me that there might be a another way of talking with people about sensitive topics that was productive and effective and efficient. And I was pleased to find out that that does indeed seem to be the case with this approach. Yeah, well, I definitely feel your pain on, um, you know, the sort of banging head on a brick wall in terms of arguments. I'm, I'm someone yeah. who loves to discuss and argue. I mean, to be you totally You love to honest, do it? Oh, absolutely love. I love love to um, engage people on on sort of meaningful topics. You know. Oh, you like that um, part of it? I think I yeah. thought you were saying like you love the the frustration or the battle or the. I guess you well, probably that, see that's, it as that's frustration. what I mean. I'm, I'm I'm up I'm up for a battle anytime. Are um, you? Hmm. But, but um, what I've found quite inspiring about your work is is um in a way it's opened up um a window into how i engage with people and and you're you're absolutely right i mean i often walk away from discussions thinking what is the whole point of dialogue very rarely does um person a convince convince person b and um a lot of dialogue uh, that works well is when two people agree. You know, mo most people spend a lot of time. I mean, one of the reasons we we make friends is because we sort of mm. on the same epistemologically, we're on the same 
on the same continent. And I mean, I, I recently read um, Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay's book, How to Have Difficult Conversations. Yeah, that's the and, second one that came out after the first one that I read. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, started, I started the Manual for Making Atheists recently as well. And I find it quite fascinating the um, how dialogue works. I mean, hence the, the name of my podcast, The Shape of Dialogue, because I do think dialogue um, has a shape, mm. has, a, has a modality to it. I, I actually mm. wanted to call the, um, the podcast The Geometry of Dialogue, because then I could call it The God, the God Podcast. Oh, but, yeah, um, that would have yeah. worked, wouldn't it? Yeah. But somehow the geometry of dialogue doesn't quite have the same ring. But um, yeah, so I've <laughs> I, I found your work um, very inspiring and um, it will definitely change how I engage with, with mm. um, people I'm talking to. You mentioned a shape of conversation. There's a, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've tried to boil down street epistemology into a, into a, into a graphical representation. Right. Did you see it? It sort of takes the form of a of a triangle or a pyramid that's broken up into three slices, where at the top of the pyramid would be the actual claim. So you notice like that triangle is, is a little bit smaller than the rest of the body. Uh, we're interested in the what or the claim. We're, and then below that or the middle section would be the reasons. What are your justifications that support the claim? And then the bottom one, that third one, that's the largest, that's at the base would be your methodology. How did you conclude that those are good reasons to be sure that your claim is true? So that was kind of an interesting way of looking at street epistemology that we're really driving down to the base. Yes, you want to know the claim. Yes, you want to identify the reasons. However, it's the methodology at the bottom that we're most interested in. Can you take me through the steps that you used to verify your reasons that give you a high degree of confidence that what you think is true is really true? And, and being somewhat a visual person myself, structuring it in that way really kind of, it dawned on me like, oh, that's a really good way of understanding it and teaching it perhaps even just as a baseline. Like this, the, the street epistemology rabbit hole goes very deep, but I wanted to come up with something that just to like very quickly sort of explain how this works and what we're focused on. Well, it's essentially the core of philosophy. It's a core of our being in, in many respects, isn't it? What we think and how we come to think it. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you, you, you touched on it before, but you know why is knowledge so important? Well, I don't think we can have true knowledge. Did, did, was there a, like a synonym for the word knowledge? What, what ex I want to make sure that I totally understand what you what you're saying because I don't I don't think that question really makes sense because I don't think you can know yeah. anything for sure. Yes, but I, I got the yeah. sense that maybe I'm being a little bit too pedantic. So if you don't mind. No, no, no. I think that, that's good. Be as pedantic as you want. I, I like that. Um, <laughs> well, well, you know, knowledge is, is what we think is, is really important because it's, um, I, I sort of equate it to, um, you know, how the, the um, ancient mariners used the stars to navigate. Hmm. Now, we can think things that are true and things that are untrue or um, or, or some, somewhere in between. And that will affect how we navigate through the world. So that's, that's what I mean, you know, why is knowledge important or how is knowledge mm. important? 
So I'm going to use that word knowledge to mean like our understanding of how the world functions or our place in it or something. And of course, yeah, that's extremely important because the views that we're forming in our minds are essentially the roadmap that we refer to nearly instantaneously when we're encountering other people, either people that we agree with or disagree with or something in between. Like we're, maybe we're just unsure. I've never even heard of that idea. I've, it's just not even a part of my culture. I need to now compare this new bit, you know, all this new information that's flowing in to what I've already concluded to be the case, essentially. We're doing this sort of, uh, I don't know, calculus, or we're running these algorithms on the fly to determine if I'm going to accept that or not outright, or if I'm going to push back on it, or if I'm going to put it in the in the box with the question mark on it and maybe get back to it later. So the, yeah, the views that we're, that we're holding and forming, I think are, are really important. And I think it's also important to take a look at them every so often, right? We're forming them all the time. How often do you actually take a look at your views that you formed? It doesn't tend well, to happen I, that I much. Would, do you, yeah, you, would, you may, that, you may. I'm yeah. Sure. The thing, you know, there's, there's um, some people are reflective and some people aren't. I would, I'd postulate that most people aren't that reflective. It's it's actually hard work, um, especially on the big claims. Like you yeah. you um, seem to, I mean, I've listened to quite a few of your interviews and it seems most of the people you're talking to are talking about some sort of religious entity. Um, I do live in Texas. Yeah, you live in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd um, you'd be less busy if you if you moved to New Zealand. Um, um, and um, I, I just find that for, for a start, I find that interesting um, that people want to talk to you about God. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the interviews, um, you know, you have the scale thing. Do you, well, first of all, do you want to talk about the scale that you use? Okay, sure. So one thing that we sort of learned early on is that like, it would be kind of nice to get a sense of where a person is in terms of their certainty that this is true. Because it's not a yes, no proposition. I'm not asking, do you think it exists or it doesn't? I want to get a sense of how sure you are that it really exists or that it really doesn't exist. So that's when we started incorporating the scale. I think there were some references to the scale in both of Bogosian's books. But it's not really until you start going out and talking with people that you realize the value of assessing where a person is, uh, their, their own self-assessment. I'm not, I'm not coming up with it. I propose it to a person. Would it be okay if we thought about your your belief in a slightly different way that you might be used to? Let's look at it in terms of your certainty that it's really true on a scale from zero to one hundred. And most people go along with it. They 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 can fairly quickly set their belief on this scale. And say, like they may say, "Yeah, I'm a hundred percent." You very often get a hundred percent, but not always. Sometimes people say, I'm 10% sure that that's true. I'm 90% sure. So all these numbers are basically a starting point and also a reference point. So maybe even after the conversation, you can revisit the confidence level. Where are you now? Sometimes people even forget about it completely. Like, oh, wow, that's right. I told you 90 at the start. Now, I don't know if I could say 90 anymore. I I, I might be like at a at, at a... At a 60 at this point, or I've actually gone up because you've helped me realize that my reasons are pretty darn good. Right. Well, I think it's quite, especially with God, 
it's quite interesting that someone would even want to discuss it because um, if you believe in God, one would think you believe in God and there'd be no doubt at all. And even if right. you had a hundred percent, you know, or as someone I, in a recent video, I think they said 110% oh, yeah. um, assurance, why would you want to discuss it? It's sort of like discussing the sky. It's sort of something that's just there. Oh, you know? I see. If they're 100% yeah. sure, why would they even want to explore it? Because they're so yeah. certain that it's true. It, yeah, and it's yet people still do agree to participate in it, mm -hmm. which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And it, it might, my suspicion is that people are overconfident in their conclusions. And that, uh, well, they are probably in a way maybe tricking themselves into participating into something that they're not necessarily prepared for because they they were so sure that they, it's just a no-brainer. I'm 100% sure that it's true. But when you start asking questions to explain, like that's sort of that top part of that pyramid that I talked about. When we start getting in the, in the middle part, which is the reasons and the bottom part, which is the methods, that's usually when people, it dawns on them like, I don't think that I can justify the 100% that I told this guy. And this is a core view to who I am. And it motivates me in these thousands of different ways. What is going on here? So that discovery can be a little bit uh, off-putting and maybe even uh, shocking to some people. So it's a kind of a slow, methodical, it's not very sexy, like it's not arguing and it's not I find it entertaining, to be quite honest. I don't know how you feel about it. There's nothing more amazing or incredible to me than to watch these yeah. exchanges. Yeah. But for somebody who's used to battles and arguments and, and contention, it could be a little bit off-putting maybe or, or just odd to watch. Well, I think it's uh, uh, if, if you juxtapose your method to um, turning on the TV and watching an interview on the news, they're, they're, they're polar opposites. They're polar and opposites. Pol polar opposites. Mm -hmm. And, you know, reading Peter Bogosian's, Peter Bogosian's books, um, it seems like the research is much more in your favor in terms of um, a positive outcome. So, so the whole way we, we, we dialogue or we discourse um, is actually, you could, you could postulate that it's actually incorrect, it's, it's wrong. You know, so, so I mean, it also goes back to I was thinking before when you're talking about street apology and uh, street epistemology and the movement. Um, we're not taught how to think in schools. So, in, in schools, we we essentially go and learn facts and figures. Um, but have you thought about getting that methodology into a curriculum at a school or mm. something like that? Oh yes, oh yes. Because because I, I I sort of I've come to philosophy very late in my life, and um, I'm amazed that we're not taught this earlier on. It's it's incredible when you become an adult and you understand the value of the approach. Yeah. It it seems like a no brainer. Like why wouldn't we want to teach this at the youngest of ages? Because this is how we avoid falling into these fallacies and building families and communities on things that we can't justify to ourselves to our own standards it's quite shocking that we that we don't teach critical thinking and uh introductory level, level concepts of philosophy to kids so to answer your question 
I would absolutely love to see this being taught in schools. I've heard of people. People do reach out to me to say, I've watched your videos and it's, I'm now incorporating it into my teaching style. I've had psychotherapists tell me the same that they are incorporating in, into their interactions, which is you really think they would have already, already known about. You would it. think so, because yeah. I think there there are parallels to to psychotherapy and motivational interviewing. Yeah. But yeah. so we are we did start a course. Uh, we're developing a course. It will be a self directed thing, but I would love to see it ultimately be presented in a way where, like, an instructor can download three or four modules, teach it to a class, give us feedback so that we can know that or learn to a high degree of confidence that this was successful or not not successful in some way. That's where we need to go. I'd I would love to see this being taught at a, at a very young age. But at the moment, we're kind of just relying on people to discover the material, see the value in it, and then look for opportunities to teach and use it and share it yourselves. So one of the reasons why we started the nonprofit is, uh, you know, we want to have the infrastructure in place so where we can start creating these materials to teach this to younger people. So just elaborate on that. The what, nonprofit? What yeah. Yeah. Last year we formed a 501c3, which is a tax exempt educational nonprofit. The idea here is to finally give people a way to financially support what we're doing in a tax deductible way, but also so that the money's just not coming to one individual who may or may not be doing whatever with it but some transparency. So it's going to an organization, there's a board of directors, and then we are, we are redirecting that money to people who are interested in promoting this method. So if like we have a small team developing a course, there will be expenses. We have people who are creating content. They might need a new video camera or, or something along those lines. Some of the communities that we gather in are expensive. You could actually improve the performance of certain forums if you pay a monthly fee. So we're doing all these things behind the scenes to try to bolster bolster the community without getting in the way. Like that's the other thing too, is this isn't like, um, I, street epistemology I don't think ever has been, and I hope it never becomes this organizational top-down dictate of what it is. Like I think the community should sort of set those standards. Like that just went above and be, like that, that went too far into aggressive mode. And I'm not even calling that SE. Like I, I kind of like to see some sort of self-governing in the community on those things. But that's why we formed the organization. Oh, the other thing too is we want people to start studying this scientifically. Like a large, a large, many of the people who are interested in what we're doing are also skeptics and we want data. We want to be able to justify the things that we're doing. And we want to get, to, we have actually started discussions with a neuroscientist to start looking at this in a scientific way. What's happening in our brains when somebody is engaged in one of these discussions? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's quite interesting because, I mean, you're a lot of, you know, as, as I said before, your work um, or the, a lot of the conversations you have are about God. Mm -hmm. And sort of think of the, the Dawkins, Hitchens, Sam Harris. Uh, I'm not going to include um, Dennett in, in that because I think has he has a different style. But I, mm. I mean, because I've, you know, sort of followed those guys over the years. And I would say their approach is, is quite the opposite of your approach. I think what, what so. Think it's interesting that you, you excluded Denon in that because if I if you gave if you told me that I could carve those four up into two different groups, I would also put Dennett in that group. And I've heard him speak to the Freedom from Religion Foundation where there was an individual who asked Dennett a question 
about which is the best approach. And he was essentially describing street epistemology. He didn't come out and say it, right. but everything that he was describing, listening, repeating back what you're hearing, giving people plenty of time, steel manning their view to help them reveal their best position, ending on a positive note, being charitable in your interpretations, defining words in advance. Like this is all the stuff that we do. So it was really cool to see a prominent individual like Dennett espouse the virtues of a method of communication that we're really pushing for. Mm-hmm. But so what but what do you think of um you know particularly Dawkins but also Hitchens and and Sam Harris to to an extent of, of their approach when it comes to um in, in a sense shooting shooting fish in a barrel is how I would put it. Like merciless, sort of merciless. Well, it's uh, it's, I, it's an interesting metaphor. In a sense, it's very easy, and you know, I'm I've um, I've been guilty of this. It's very easy to, you know, from a skeptical and atheistic point of view, to um, denigrate religious uh-huh. religion and religious thinking and yeah. people who hold those views. Mm-hmm. I did see a video, I think it just came up on my phone one day when I was at the grocery store, like something I was watching ended and then a talk with Dawkins and and it was Krauss came up and I think Dawkins had just spoke at the, the what was it called? The Reason Rally, the first one where he really was taught, it seemed like he was saying we need to ridicule people. And then he used this opportunity right before they got into the talk with Krauss to explain what I really meant was we need to ridicule the ideas that these people have. Now, I don't know if he just switched because there was just too much pressure for the initial message or that really was his message or just got... Con- Anyways, his current position, it seems, is that he makes a distinction between people and then the views that people hold. And that was encouraging to see. Yeah. So, I, I, that's how I would read the reader's position. Mm. I mean, um, I always think, um, especially uh, big ideas, you should be able to ridicule them. Mm-hmm. You the, should be the, able to. The problem to, is, of course, yeah. that people protect their reasons or their, their claims, I should say. Uh, it's really the claims, isn't it? It's, it's uh, mm. the beliefs. I, I, I equate the word claim with belief. So people will circle the rat, the wagons on their cherished beliefs, on their cherished claims to protect them because they're so tied to their own identity. And uh, this is why we're, we're really not even interested in the claims that people are making. This is where we go deeper than Dawkins, I think. Because so Dawkins, it seemed like, would make the distinction like, no, don't go after the people, go after the claims they're making, go after those bad ideas. But that's problematic because people tie those ideas to themselves. So you need to go lower. You need to go to reasons and method, which is what we do in street epistemology. So if a person can objectively look at the quality of their verification process of their reasons, that's a completely different mindset than going after the truth of the claim. It has implications for the truth of your claim, but it softens people in a way that I guess like not going after the the sensitive claim and going for the deeper stuff, people tend to feel, I think, less defensive and more open to exploring those things. Yeah, you're essentially getting under the hood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're getting into the engine rather than focusing on the chassis. I was thinking, though, it might be fun to keep going like on the other 
guys that you talked about, like Harris yeah. and then um, like Hitchens. Well, Hitchens is de like he's deceased now. Yeah, I never met him. It was, well, I mean, he is and he's not. I mean, his legacy know, lives on. I mean, how it? many Hitchens videos have I watched? You know. Yes. I had this funny thing where I um, discovered, you know, Hitchens, and um, and I was, you know, started watching lots of his videos, and then um, this is this is about sort of ten, eleven years ago, and there was one video. He said, "Oh, you know, if you just just contact me, just just email me," and I thought, "Oh, great, you know, I'm going to email Christopher Hitchens. How cool is that?" And I went to email him, and then I came across something and, and said he died three months earlier. So, oh, <laughs> never harsh. got to email him. Oh, but but they, I think he's alive you know. and well in many respects on the on the internet. So mm -hmm. I think he's he's a figure to um to consider. But anyway, carry on. Hitchens, when I think of Hitchens, the things that immediately come to mind are not really his books, which I have a few. I don't think I've ever, I've cracked them, you know, and I have some signed copies that I've, I've received over the years and that type of thing. It's more his debating and the way that he would carry himself and the, the way that he used words, I think, resonated with a lot of people. It, I guess it was neat to see an academic going head to head with some of the religious leadership and people who were experienced in doctrine and then the apologetics that was kind of neat to see but it i guess i was too far into my atheist i don't know like i didn't really it, hitchens didn't really appeal to much as much to me as maybe a sam harris did or even like colin shows like the atheist experience and dawkins was big up there like the the, the god delusion of course that was a big book for me too to recognize that I'm an atheist and I should probably start doing something about this. Like we, this is a problem that needs to be fixed. So that was useful. So, uh, Jeff, can, yeah. can I just ask you a question on that? Of course. Why do you say, it's, why do you say, cause I, you know, I'm an atheist and always have been blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, I like to be skeptical about my own beliefs, but why do you say it's, you know, in a sense, what you're saying was, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but religion is a problem that needs to be fixed. Why is, why do you say that? Well, it seems pretty evident to me, evident to me that that's the case. So we see people who are making decisions that affect us in our governments and in our schools, and they're largely influenced when you get down to the bottom of it by th the positions that people hold when it comes to whether or not there's a deity. So this kind of goes back earlier to what we were saying, like, these beliefs inform our actions and they spill out and affect other people. And also being the father of two young kids and seeing my kids come home from school, literally repeating things that I would see in the culture, but being presented to them as fact by teachers at public schools that really shouldn't have been doing that in the first place, like telling them about heaven or you, who here prays, raise your hand if you pray. There's no, there's no place for that. So then it just starts dawning on you, at least, at least for myself, like, this is really a problem. There's a very few people doing this. There might be some way of having better conversations and all that just appealed to me. And then when you find out that it seems to work, then it's like, okay, now we really need to get serious about this. Let's start a nonprofit. Let's encourage people to start making as many videos as possible. Let's do interviews with you know, people in New Zealand and so forth to, to get the word out. So, I mean, the, um, you know, the environments which we live 
respectively live in are, are quite different. So just tell me about how religious Texas is. I well, I don't know how how would we measure measure this, but mm, it's pretty religious. There are probably other cities and states that are more religious, like maybe Tennessee comes to mind or Arkansas. It also, I think, depends on what city you're in. So if I was in Austin, it probably wouldn't be nearly as religious as Dallas or San Antonio's pretty religious. There, there's different degrees, I guess, depending on what what city you go to go into. Where I'm at, seventy percent of the people I would say would would identify as being uh, some you know having some form of theism. It's pretty high. Hmm. See, I mean, in New Zealand, we're pretty. Um, you know, religion is there in the background, but it's not strong at all in, in that same way. I'd be very surprised. If my child came home from school and said, you know, um, they'd been told, told about heaven and all those sorts of things. <laughs> we do have, it's interesting, there are some billboards that we see in town and it says, think God, in these big black letters on a white back. Have you seen those billboards? No. They're, they're very, like... And that, that, that to... would be normal? That's just normal? I don't, well, I look at it with a different set of eyes. I look at that and think... Why are they advertising? What would well, no, what would no, prompt what, what, I mean by, yeah, what I mean by normal is that that's common. You know, I, I'd never we'd we'd never see oh a, a billboard like that. We have in, those, in and then if you drive a little bit on the outskirts of town towards going like north or southwest, east towards some of the smaller communities, you tend to see more billboards for churches and that type of thing. Not so much in the big yeah. cities, maybe because it's an expense thing, or maybe it's just a. Who knows? I'm not exactly sure what the logic is there. You tend to see more well, religious billboards on the outskirts of town than the inside in the, the inside of town. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, religion's a business, isn't it? I, I always say, you know, religion's got the ultimate product: zero production costs. Hmm. Uh, you've got a few marketing costs. You've got you know a few people to employ. Um, and however, um, the damage that they are that they are causing is probably incalculable. <laughs> Causing people to worry about burning in hell for something that they can't justify. It's quite twisted. It's a, it's a very twisted business. Well, you know, I mean, when you look at something like um, Scientology, that's where it takes those those sort of things to extreme, where it locks people in psychologically and and also material as, as well. Sure. Um, it, yeah, it, it is pretty extreme. Yeah. Well, I suppose that I suppose with religion, the extremes are extreme, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, because I, again, you know, being skeptical about my own beliefs, you know, I sort of try and I ask myself the question, well, what's the harm of, of believing in God? Mm -hmm. um, if I'm going to like, I believe in God, I go to church twice a year, you know, that sort of thing, as opposed to, um, you know, your I mean, I watched one of your, just very briefly, um, some sort of evangelist you were having a conversation with, he came and approached you, and he, he basically seemed absolutely crazy, literally sort of off the wall crazy. I mean, those, I think there's massive harm in, in that, um, that degree of religiosity. But again, if I, if I can just, you know, question, you know, probably what we both think, what is the harm of sort of a light, a light smattering of religion 
I believe in, you know, um, a, a being, you know, God is, you know, God is love or all those sorts of things where they actually redefine the traditional sense of what a God is. What's wrong mm -hmm. with that sort of religiosity? That's kind of a tough question for me to answer because the way that you're describing it, it seems fairly benign. Like, why would you want to get in the way? It's only twice a year that they're maybe consuming a little bit of gas and maybe they throw 20 bucks in each time that they go. And you've, you've, you've pay, helped pay the electricity for this building and maybe a little bit of a salary. And maybe you felt a little better about it. Um, the problem is that a lot of people go to more extremes. So they'll attend more frequently. They will not only attend, but they'll listen to what the pastor has to say about the political candidates who are running for office, even though they're not supposed to do that. And then, yes, then to the extreme, you have like the maniacal street preacher just ranting about Jesus and that you're all going to go to hell. So I guess I've heard this before, so this might not be a new thing, but it seems like the casual everyday believers could actually be giving cover to some of the more extremists that are out there. And I think the, the, the fewer people who are participating in this stuff, because they perhaps found better ways of dealing with the difficulties of life without needing to rely on something that they can't back up to themselves, that it might expose, it'll provide a sharper contrast for the people who are still out there promoting it, if fewer and fewer people allow these beliefs to affect them, even to the minor degree that you described. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, I mean, Sam Harris talks about that um, in one of his podcasts a long time ago, is, is exactly what- It's not saying. a novel, like it, it's not a, a unique concept, yeah. but I think, no, no. I think it's accurate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, I've met people who, you know, they're, they're in late stage of life. They put it this way, you know, life hasn't looked kindly on them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they'll, they'll say to me, you know, at the end of a, a text or a conversation, you know, God bless you or, you know, yeah. something like that. In a way, it's, you know, I would say, have a nice day. They would say, God bless you. And there's obviously a sense of, of um, religion there and they go to church, you know, once a week. And I sort of think, you know, who am I to argue, in a sense, in quite an arrogant way, against their religiosity, when, in a sense, it might be psychologically quite a nice thing to have? Some people need it. And yeah. it's it's funny. It's, it's a little ironic because I've been on the phone last couple of nights with my aunt, who's extremely religious. She's my godmother. She's she's in the hospital. She's, she's having difficulties. Um, I don't know what her prognosis is. I'm very worried about it, but she'll end conversations like, thank you so much, my godson for calling. And she'll end it like usually a kind of on a, like a, a, a soft religious note. <laughs> and she knows where I stand because we've had conversations in the past, but I don't push back on it. It's not the time or place. Some people need these views. So you really have to ask yourself like, what else is going on in this person's life? Are they prepared to have a conversation where they may start questioning these deeply held beliefs? Do they have infrastructure and support in place? What's my obligation if I were to engage with her and, and she starts questioning? And that could be a very difficult process. 
So there's a, I think people who are aware of this method, when you start using it and you realize how profoundly effective it can be, you start becoming a little bit more careful how you, how you wield that tool around and when you pull it out to use it. So there's a lot of, at least from my perspective, there are many times where I don't even question it and I just let it go because how many people is this individual going to reach? That's, that's part of my factor, my factoring in, like if they're a prominent content creator and they say something or they constantly post something on their Facebook page, that's blatantly false. And I can see my nieces and nephews and other family members and friends like being convinced by what they're saying, then I might see it as an opportunity to investigate it with them if they want to. Yeah. Well, I think getting back to, you know, Dawkins, Hawkins and Harris, I think what they do, um, in a sense, by, I'll use the word, by attacking the top tier of religious thinkers, I actually think that's actually quite important, and doing it mm. in an argumentative um, mm -hmm. way rather than a street epistemological way. Because, in a sense, they you have to show the people who are, have the greatest influence, you have to show that they, you know, you have to show where their flaws, their, I mean, someone like, um, mm -hmm. was it, is it Craig Lane? The, mm -hmm. Yeah, is that his name? William, uh, William. William yeah. Craig Lane, yeah. I mean, you're never going to have um, an interview session with him, which you're going to stick up on online. He would never allow that. He, he would be so closed. So the only way of attacking that that edifice is is essentially you know with sort of um, with argument rather than discourse. I have a lot of thoughts on what you've just said. Um, I I wouldn't completely rule out somebody like that agreeing to sit down and talk with somebody like me, but I think I think you're you're right if you're suggesting that um there's a risk like it's it's probably in their best interest not to no just I mean, ignore... it'd be interesting it'd be interesting for you to actually try and have a sit down with them it would be because actually i have some questions for him because i've recently watched some of his stuff it just yeah. came on and i was watching this debate that he did nine years ago but i was looking at it through these fresh eyes of of someone into street epistemology and noticing some of the words that he was using and how he he redefined something very crucial, it seeming like like he did. So I, I actually, I'm kind of in this position where I, I, I do want to ask him some questions, but I'm not sure what the right venue is. Do I email him? Do I do a private video chat with him that we promise that we'll record it but never release it until we're both dead or something? I mean, how do we, what's, what's the etiquette here? I don't know what the etiquette would be, but it's interesting. There are a lot of like um, up and coming apologists who are like nipping at our heels asking for interviews and things and shoot i did asking like for interviews with you yeah like yeah can you come on my podcast uh, i've even been been invited to like religious seminars to debate with people about god but i'm not interested in that i would be more than happy to go to a religious or like a theological sem you know presentation or conference to introduce street epistemology to them and maybe give them a heads up and say this method is coming your way. You should be aware of it. And here's some advice that I would give you for dealing with people who ask these questions. What would you say? I would tell them that you need to have really good evidence to support your beliefs. And and I would I would ask them, I would sort of encourage them to just like 
Take another look at the quality of your reasons and figure out what your best reasons are and then communicate that to your, to your congregation. I, I, I want to help them figure out what their best argument is. Because listen, when I walk up to somebody on a campus or on a trail and I ask them, why do you think the Christian God is real? Because that's their claim and that's what they want to explore. I don't want to be knocking over straw men arguments for their position. Like I want, I want them to, re, to, even though they may not know what the best arguments are, that discovery can go help them figure out what those best reasons are. So, yeah, so you, yeah. you, you, you want to go to the, the top of the pyramid. I do and I don't. So the other part of this is like, I could have 10 conversations with 10 people in three hours. But if I were to have a conversation with a diehard apologist who has a YouTube channel and a lot of ego and maybe even a little bit of income at stake, mm -hmm. it might take me nine hours with that one person to do, to make just as much progress. Well, yeah, well, the thing is, one would have to be very skeptical whether you'd make any progress at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and we are. I mean, we're, this, we're not sure uh, what even what, what, what does progress even mean? Well, you know, they change their mind. Um, Maybe. Something, I wanna, something else I want to talk about is that people who don't believe in God, right, okay, I'll, I'll reframe this. I think the um, religious imperative in human beings is actually very strong. The, the, um, the ability to, to believe claims that we can't justify. Um, and an, and another sort of side shoot is is a desire to want to believe in something, something that's sort of bigger than us that explains the world. And um, I heard an interesting thing, you know, a religious person who was advocating um, the belief in God, and you know, we all have to believe in God. It's the only way we can be moral and all that sort of thing. And he said one thing, which I, I disagreed with everything he said, except for this, which I thought was an interesting point. He said, when without religion, people are still going to believe irrational things because that's what humans do. And in a, in a sense, he was arguing that religion is, in a sense, the worst irrational thing to think. Sorry, the least worse irrational thing to think. And, um, you know, recently... I watched um, one of your videos with the sort of social justice warrior type, um, you know, Indian Mexican studies person about the Katina dolls. Mm -hmm. um, that to me, um, the social justice warriors um, are just be as being as religious as you know your 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 Catholic who who thinks we're all going to hell and heaven. Um, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, you're, you're identifying something that's really interesting. So I mentioned earlier how we realized as practitioners that we can use this on all sorts of claims and we are noticing that we can use it on claims of people who have, they're surfacing epistemologies or way of coming to be able to say that they know something to be true on things that seem kind of baffling when you really start getting into it and peeling back the layers. So whether it's a religious person or somebody who thinks that the way that you can tell something to be true is, is figuring out which culture propagated the claim. And then if they have the most aggrieved and, and troubled narrative over the course of history, then that's what we go with. That's and they're how, the oldest. 
It, it, so so they got they got to the land first right so that they're, they're yeah, therefore winner takes all mentality therefore it trumps everything until we discover yeah. a culture that preceded them and then they're of course then we just rewrite everything to go with what they said so a people people are running around i don't even know if she really even thinks that's true or that's just what she was taught and now there's social implications if she goes against it who knows but bottom line is humans are very creative in coming up with ways to justify the things that we want to believe are true or it's so important that they be true that we make them true and this approach of asking questions is shining a light on that in a respectful way with them so they can then go home and think about it and say like is that the kind of life i want to live it it really gets back to you know what is true and how we how we get to that point, um, you know, along the lines of um, the social justice warrior mentality, is the whole relativism. You know, people think um, you can have your truth, I can have my truth. There's no objective truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I I've had you know, I, I have a, um, quite a few discussions with young people. Um, and, uh, you know, very, very smart, you know, highly, highly knowledgeable, highly intelligent people recently have, have basically said that, you know, we, we can't have an objective truth. What, what's your thinking on, uh, on relativism and, and also uh, sort of a broader, a broader question on postmodernism? Are you, are you familiar with that philosophy? Yes. I didn't realize it at the time when I started going out to do interviews, how problematic this concept of subjective truth has on the beliefs that people are forming and the belief revision process itself. And of course, also the implications that thousands, millions of people running around with that mindset could have on humanity. I think, I think it, relativism or this idea that truth can be whatever I want it to be because it's my truth. It's true for me. That could very well be an existential threat to humanity if it's allowed to propagate and impact sensitive aspects of our culture, government, education, medicine. Just, yeah, elabor- elaborate on that. Give a few examples. What, how, what, what, would, what could possibly go wrong? What couldn't go wrong? So the idea here is that you're justified in thinking that something is factually true because it's your preference that that's the case. And when you encounter somebody who also feels the same way about their views, that I could just make it true, well, how do you settle differences? Like we stop at red lights largely because we have an expectation that the other person values truth. And when they see a green, they go and they see a red, they stop. It's almost a universal standard. But if you can make anything that you want to be true, you can just simply sail through those red lights. And that's what people are doing in their in the conversations that they're having and in the, in the decisions that they're making. What school to send my kid to or who I'm going to vote for. So the, the recognition that you're even doing it, I think, is important. Many people, I think, don't they're not even aware that they've that they've relegated truth to some backwater aspect of our society when it really needs to be elevated 
and seen as objective. So you really have to settle that that gap. You have to address that gap between objective truth and subjective truth before you really get into the claims that people are making. But we often don't do that. We think, oh, they just have a claim. I'm going to give them facts to show that they're wrong and they'll go on their merry way. But if they think truth is subjective, nothing that you can give them will change their mind because they're set, because they think it's the case. So you have to ta- you really have to tackle that first, but do it in a respectful way. Ask questions. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, in a, in a way we haven't touched on um, you know, the processes that you use. And we, 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 we have touched on it, but we haven't really sort of gone down it. Do you want to just talk about how you do street epistemology mm-hmm. and how it is different from, uh, you know, and what what most people do when they're when they're challenging other people's ideas. Usually, when we encounter somebody that we disagree with or we think that they're mistaken, we scan our brains for things that we think they will find convincing. All I need to do is give them the link to this article, or I just saw an episode on this show, and I just they just need to watch this and they'll change their mind. Or this book that I read. You need to set that aside, because what you found convincing isn't necessarily going to be what they will find convincing. You could get lucky and and hit that one out of a hundred shot and give them something that, that they were ready for and they trust you and it landed with them and they contemplated it and it changed their mind. But oftentimes we're just kind of grasping in the dark for things that we think will other people will find convincing. What you need to do is set aside your Set aside your understanding of the topic at hand as best you can and take yourself out of it as best you can and really focus on them. Can you tell me how you formed this view? What is the biggest reason propping this up? If that reason wasn't there, would you be just as sure? Oh, you would? Well, what other reason might be propping this up? So isolating the reason. And then once you've isolated the reason, can you talk me through how you confirm that that's a good reason? How did you go about confirming that to be the case? And again, listening to them, repeating it back, giving them plenty of time to think about it, and then revisiting their level of confidence. That's generally what we do in street epistemology. They're all different styles, and there might be people who are into street epistemology that completely skip some of those things that I talked about, or they spend more time on certain elements, but that's generally the trajectory of it. It's not trying to say things to convince people. It's asking how they became convinced and revealing that. And, and documenting it, like writing it out. Here's the steps that you're using. Is that correct? What, you know, what happens at this stage? How do you deal with this? That's what we're doing in street epistemology. Yeah, I mean, two things that strike me, well, three things that strike me about it is the degree of respect that you show to, to the person you're talking to. I try. Um, yeah. And and that's I think that's that's you know it's really impressive, um, and really positive. The um, the other thing is the how much they enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I, I find that really interesting. Even you know even the hardcore religious people where it's one hundred and ten percent, one hundred and twenty percent, you know, convinced that God's real, and they go away and they thank you and they go go with a smile. And then also I like your thing of of how you do you want to just explain the thing about the puzzle 
Yes, I have a little set of puzzle pieces that form a gear that's red, blue, and yellow. And they're made of that same sort of squishy stress ball material. And they look like little puzzle pieces. And when you put them together, they form this ring or this gear. And because I've discovered early on that it's not hard to get people to stop and participate and they enjoy it, like you said, then I started wondering, well, what happens after? How do I encourage people to come back for more talks? Because I really want to have something on camera where I show the full journey from, I'm so sure that this is true, to now I'm starting to question, to I'm realizing that I don't have any good reasons for thinking this is true, to I've now decided to put that on the back burner. I no longer have a high degree of confidence that that's true. And this was sort of a, a gimmick of sorts to try to encourage people to come back. But people were coming back because they wanted to get their third puzzle piece, or they would even come back more. They, I, I started, I was running out of things to give people because you they need kept... a bigger puzzle. <laughs> I needed something. So I actually yeah. got a fourth type of thing. It's the shape of a brain. And it's like, if someone come back, comes back for four, I give them that. But that was encouraging yeah. to me that, that people were enjoying the questions that I was asking. I, I don't ask easy questions. They are very difficult questions, but they're presented in a respectful way that people don't feel threatened, even though I'm recording them too, which is quite amazing. And then they come back for more. And we're exploring the quality of the reasons that backs up this deeply held belief that's core to who they are, which is which is not what you get when you approach these things from the more aggressive styles that we talked about earlier. Well, that, that was the third thing I was going to say was it's a form of therapy. That's that's how I've you know I, I see it and and therapy and not in a negative sense in a in a positive sense. Um, I suppose it's that thing of humans like to talk. First of all, they like to talk about themselves mm -hmm. and they like to talk about what they what they believe in mm -hmm. as well. So uh, yeah, so it's it's quite interesting. I would say it's um, not only therapy for the person that you're using the approach with, but as a practitioner, I found that it's calmed me down. I have a lot more respect for people that I disagree with and right. it's improved me like psychologically. I think I'm a, I'm a healthier human from having learned this tool. Cause you're not banging your head on that brick wall. That's right. Time. Yeah. yeah. And I feel good at the end of the talk too. Like I don't right. feel like crap because I argue with somebody and my heart's racing and my face is flushed and you know, I, I feel like we didn't get anywhere and what an asshole that I just talked to. Right. So like it's uh I'm I'm energized by the end of these short talks. Yeah, it feels right. really good. Yeah. And and also, you know, for the people who hadn't seen your work, just explain how you do it and where you do it. Okay. Normally I go out with my cameras here in Texas somewhere if the weather's good, it's not too hot. I'll either head to like a hail a trailhead near my house. I usually don't drive very far, like maybe five, 10 minutes. And I go to the school. There's a couple of universities near my house. And I usually go to the same spot. I try to wear the same clothing. And now I have a couple of different camera angles. To, it's it's become this kind of big production, so to speak. I haven't been doing it lately because of COVID. But I was doing it yeah. like in like in February of this year, I was going out and doing talks. And I usually ask people who are walking by if they have five minutes to explore a deeply held belief that they think is true. And I explain what street epistemology is. I ask for their consent to be recorded. And I encourage them to pick the claim as well. What do you feel like you'd like to talk about that we can explore? 
And now being in Texas, a lot of people want to talk about God, but we talk about politics and social issues. Racism was a topic I did recently, veganism. And we explore these topics in much the same way where I'm reflecting back, I'm asking questions, I'm giving them plenty of time to think. We try to end it on a good note and then I encourage them to come back so we can pick it up. And that's usually how it goes. And so what percentage of people that you ask actually do it? It's It was surprisingly high. I would put it at one out of four people maybe would stop. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe one out of three. Yeah. There's certain advantages to like going to the same spot regularly and then those same people noticing you having these conversations. There's a little bit of a buzz that goes around too. Like, what's that guy asking you? Where did you get that puzzle piece? Yeah. I might talk to him. Yeah, you got to talk to him. Like he made me think. So right. yeah, right. It's, it's neat. So you're getting a bit of a name for yourself? In a good and bad yeah, way. Like it's, it's not all good either. Like I think there's some some people who are on campus who are worried about what I'm doing. Don't talk to him. That I've right. I've I've uncovered a couple of people, you know, narratives where like you're not prepared to talk to that guy. Like you, you need about two three years with this belief before you really would be prepared to talk to him. Yeah. Why do we hold our beliefs so strongly, and why do we, um, you know, you're talking about getting hot and bothered in in your old style of discussion why do we get so sort of metabolic metabolically you know wound up <laughs> who knows i mean i've had I, my, my, i have some people. thinking yeah. about it my did you want to did you want to speak oh yeah I, I was just gonna say i've had discussions with people who i you know i've got to say are the most sort of calm highly intelligent calm calm cool and collected people get them on on a topic um one specific topic and they become highly irrational highly emotional and and highly irrational yeah my thinking is that they realize at some level the implications that your questions have for their continuation of holding the belief and because the belief is tied to who they are they see it as a threat i would have to be a different person if i no longer thought that this entity was real and this has implications for my the, the family that I hang around with, that loves me, that protects me, that raised me in this belief. Perhaps I might get kicked out of my family if I if I no longer thought that it was true. There's social there there are costs yeah. mm. with not only like there's a cost to explore it and deal with the doubt, but then afterwards too. You have there's a rebuilding process. So perhaps the realization that. This is going to cost a lot of energy. This is going to cost a lot of resources to deal with. So I'd rather just get upset about it and shut that person down so that I can keep holding on to this belief. I think that's happening in a lot of cases. Hmm. And we do it too. Like we're not exempt from it. Well, we, you can, uh, you know, you, you can feel it rising in yourself, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a technique and a skill to be able to let it go and let it sigh down. But I, that's, again, I find it very interesting in one's own psychology and um, biology is I'm having a discussion with some someone that we're not in agreement and I find my heart racing. And why is that? It, it seems, it just seems. Um, yeah. 
Well, it's there's hard to work out what 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 the what the reasons for that would be. You're reminding me of a study that we often refer to when we talk about street epistemology, and it was with Sam Harris, uh, Sarah Gimble, and Jonas Kaplan. And it talks about the backfire effect where they were looking at brain scans of people who were presented with information that challenged their current view. And apparently certain areas of their brains were lighting up in these MRIs, these mag, mag, what is it, magnetic resonance imaging resonance. systems, something yeah. like that. MRI, yeah. And when they compared the areas of the brain that were lighting up when you were presented with facts that showed that you were mistaken, it was very similar to areas of the brain that would light up when you were presented with a threat. Yeah. So if you saw a bear in the woods like that, <gasps> that, that kind of that reaction is very similar to what's going on in your brain when it's like, <gasps> this core belief that I've thought for so long was true might not be. That is what I think our brains, our brains are trying to protect ourselves from those thoughts. And we have to allow our brains to process those thoughts if we value truth and we want to believe true things. Yeah, I mean, it made me think, uh, you know, our lives um, com compare, compared to how humans used to live, our lives are so um, cloistered. I don't wake up in the, in the morning having to fear for my life. Um, when I walk outside, I don't have to fear for my life. Where if you're, you know, living on the savannah um, 10,000 years ago, you probably would have to fear for your life, life to, to some degree. Mm. So I wonder if when, uh, you know, core ideal, ideas, things that we hold to be, to be true, are challenged, it's in a way, it's sort of, it's, it's the closest thing we, we have to, to being challenged on the, you know, our, our, our lives being put in danger. That's, that's probably a little bit too far, but um, I think there's something so there it's to very it. unusual for us to feel that sort of discomfort. Mm -hmm. Humans, I think, want safety. We want yes. protection. Yeah. Yes, and so we our have beliefs, psychological safety. Mm -hmm. yeah. Our beliefs give us that feeling of protection, that everything's in order. There's nothing. Yeah. Uh, everything is clear. I've got it all figured out. Everything is okay. I can I can mentally relax. And 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 also like you got me thinking. One of the things that we really try to do in street epistemology is to listen to people and build trust and help people feel relaxed and safe. A a, a person who thinks they're in a safe environment to share these views are going to probably be more revealing and and honest when they do so. And that's exactly what makes for a productive conversation. So you want to have relaxed, open, friendly, calm, clear thinking conversation partners because you want to be asking the best questions that you can form. And that in turn, like it's this just this wonderful positive spiraling effect where you're really making progress in the talks because you've you've put in all the work on the front end to get to that foundation. Yeah, I mean that's that's. Um, I mean, it's really positive hearing you talking talk, talking about it in, in that way. Um, well, I have. I think we should probably wrap up, but I, I do have one last question. Do you think there is an even or odd number of uh, tic tacs in this box, <laughs> and how do you justify that? Do you want to uh, explain the in joke? <clears throat> 
Well, you mentioned, you asked earlier about relativism and objective truth versus subjective. And this was a, a, a thing that I thought of, of how to address this disconnect that people have when it comes to truth being objective or subjective. So the second I get any indication that maybe somebody is thinking truth is subjective and it, something could be true as long as it's my personal preference, then I usually break out the, 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 the box of candies that you have there and I say, can we do a fun little thought experiment? And I would ask them, do you think that the total number of pieces in here can either be even or odd and it can't simultaneously be both? And sometimes you have to repeat it and sometimes people think that you're doing a trick or there's a broken off piece in there or, and don't use colored, different colored candies, use white. Because if you used orange, they would say, well, like, I might think it's orange, but then you have a different interpretation of what orange means. I learned early on not to use colored Tic Tacs. So yeah, I go with I'm, white. I'm so pleased because it took me, took me quite a while to decide which ones I was going to get. They I'm were glad that you ones. went with the whites. There was some yeah. logic behind it. Yeah. If people really push back on it, you can just say, do you think that there are candies in the box or there's not candies in the box? Because sometimes people quibble about what it means to be even and odd and that these are social constructed things and of course yeah they are like we we've given these things labels but it's interesting how people will they will fight on this idea that there can either be even or odd total number of pieces in there it, it's sort of like what's what's one plus one mm -hmm. two it's almost like they're they're questioning that and that 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 i i find that the simplest question in the world where it's either mm -hmm. You know, because I mean, essentially, we, you know, if you're talking about truth, I mean, that is that is one of the truths in this world. Yeah. There is in this little box is either an odd or even mm -hmm. number of, of candy. If I had to date um, again or give people dating advice, that would be one of the things that I would advise people to do. Like when you're looking for a mate, do you want a mate that that values truth and wants to believe as many true things as possible and, and makes the distinction between opinion and fact? I would. And this is a really fun way to see if they do as well. And if yeah. they're open to the idea of viewing truth in objective terms. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think what you're doing is, is great work, especially in, in these times where um, the internet and social media and, and um, legacy news media are making conversations harder in many sense where yeah. um, there's, you know, it's not, it's not if it bleeds, it leads. It's more if it's um, cantankerous, yeah. it leads. And that's what's being um, modeled for us on a daily basis is this mm. contentious battle of ideas where nobody seemingly makes any progress. And then yeah. when you're asked to talk about that same subject, I think a lot of people are worried that it's going to become this big contentious thing. It doesn't have to be anymore. We have a better way. Help us promote this and develop it even further and start working it into the culture where people can say, I, I don't want to argue with you. I want to try a different way. So um, where, where can people find more about what you do? Let's see. I have a website now. It's just my first name and my last name. I don't usually promote it that much, but it's a good place to go to if you want to find anything that I personally do. But if you're just more genuine, genuinely interested in the approach, then I would recommend going to streetepistemology.com. And you can find communities and videos, all sorts of resources. We have like one-page tip sheets in eight different languages where you can just get the basics. Like what are some good questions to be aware of so that I can try that thing that that guy was telling me about?
So go to that website, dig around, you'll find links to everything that you need to do. You know, the biggest resource today, in my mind, there's a Discord server where there are people from around the world who are interested in this and they're developing further and they're having amazing talks. So I would recommend looking into that as well. Okay, I'll put all those links links in. Okay. Um, and just to finish off with, what I find interesting is um, essentially what you're doing is goes right back to Socrates two and a half thousand years ago. Have you, um, you know, in, in Peter Boghossian's books, he, you know, often references Socrates. Have you gone down that rabbit hole yourself? I've only, I'm only vaguely aware of, of those stories and some of the concepts. I understand that SE street epistemology is an offshoot of the Socratic method. I think we've, we're building in a lot of the things that we're seeing in science and psychology, and we want to rigor, rigorously scientifically test this. We're interested in what's happening in the brain. So I think we've come a long way from it. But yeah, there, there's some parallels, like, because like from what I understand, he asked a lot of questions that ended up upsetting some of the the status quo, the the government, the the people in power of the day. And now I can see, like, if this really catches on, which I think it eventually will, there's no slowing this down. It will eventually catch on and work its way into the culture. I can't see it ever stopping because it's effective and it works. Like it's it's seemingly effective and it seems to help people take a look at look at their views. Um. That could be threatening to some of the institutions that are out there. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Well, I think what you're doing is a, is a beautiful thing. And um, thank you so much for, for doing it. And thanks for coming on the podcast. It was my pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me on.